This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by DK Summit. Do you want to play Mario Kart without falling off giant mushrooms into a bottomless pit? Try DK Summit today. Welcome to episode 63 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, October 29th. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Today, we are talking about productivity, the enemy of swivel desk chairs. Seriously, how does anyone get anything done with a desk chair that swivels and has wheels on the bottom? Every time I've had one, all I could think about all day was spinning around the office like the teacup ride at Disneyland. But our productivity isn't just affected by swivel chairs, it's also affected by the environment. Now, I know, depending on if you love your job, hate your job, or are somewhere in between, the idea of productivity on the surface may or may not resonate. But when we talk about impacts on productivity today, I want to point out that it means more than just how much work you get done. Maybe lower productivity is affecting future raises or promotions. Maybe, and probably, you'd be concerned that the way the environment can affect productivity is by creating health issues. Or maybe you're managing a team or even running your own business, and the environment is affecting what your team is able to accomplish. That's right, Jeff Bezos. I know you're listening. Imagine if you could have $200 billion. Oh, you already do? Wait, now you're down to 130 Back to 180 Down to 140 Wow, markets are weird. While some of us may care about one aspect of worker productivity and others of us may care about other aspects, worker productivity is important to pretty much everyone. It's even important enough to be featured in the news. The World Health Organization estimates that climate change will cause an additional 250,000 deaths every year between 2030 and 2050, and these can come through a variety of conditions such as heat stress. Now, changes in the quality of air, water, and food, they can also affect our health directly, and that will affect how we work and earn a living. Okay, maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths was the real headline here, but the angle this news segment took was the concern heat stress presents to workers. The title of the video, actually, was Companies Need to Understand Effects of Heat Stress on Outdoor Workers. And of course they do. If heat stress is beginning to present fatal hazards for workers, that is, of course, horrific for workers and their loved ones. And on top of that, it could ripple out and have economic and social impacts around the world. And sadly, 
Heat stress is just one of many environmental issues affecting productivity. So today, we're going to discuss how the environment affects productivity, what that means economically and socially, and how we can address it moving forward. And if we're talking about productivity today, let's be productive and dive right in. Let's talk about heat stress. Many, many studies have found that unusually hot weather is linked to lower economic output in countries around the world. A study in Nature found an annual average of 55 degrees Fahrenheit, or 13 degrees Celsius, to be the peak productivity temperature, with a sharp decline as average annual temperatures rise. They found the relationship to be globally generalizable, unchanged since 1960, and apparent for agricultural and non-agricultural activity in both rich and poor countries. And it wasn't just productivity on the job. The study found a 1 degree increase in the 10-day temperature average increased the productivity that a worker would be absent by as much as 5%. And no kidding, right? Who can get any work done when it's 100 degrees out? Meerkats? Zac Efron? These numbers seem big on the surface, but when I actually think about the extreme heat conditions facing many parts of the world, it's amazing that productivity isn't hit even harder. I mean, take India, or as climate change calls it, home base. Between less productive workers and workers not showing up, an analysis in that nature study of almost 70,000 factories in India found the value of output declined by about 3% for every degree above the average temperature, which explains away the entire reduction in India's economic output in hot years. That's pretty mind-boggling to think about. But of course, it's not just these macro impacts to economic output. For the workers, heat stress can lead to rashes, cramps, dizziness, headache, nausea, seizures, chronic kidney disease, heat stroke, and in extreme cases, even death. These impacts are particularly felt by agriculture workers, who are projected to lose 60% of global working hours to heat stress by 2030, and construction workers, who are projected to lose 19% of global working hours to heat stress by 2030. And companies know this. Listen to this YouTube video I came across from an equipment company called GME Supply, informing workers about heat stress. The most important way to avoid heat stress is proper hydration. Strenuous work in high temperature environments can result in a worker losing multiple liters of water in as little as an hour. According to NIOSH recommendations, workers should be drinking roughly 24 to 32 ounces of water every hour, possibly more as temperatures rise. First off, quick little fun fact, the idea that we have to drink 8 glasses of water per day is a complete myth. Several studies have debunked this. It's also untrue that if you're thirsty, you're already severely dehydrated, or that your pee should be clear. Why I trusted my high school track teammates on the correct color of pee, I'll never know. I won't get into details here, but experts say we only actually need to drink water when we're thirsty, which makes sense. That's why people evolved to get thirsty. So super interesting, go look that up after you listen to today's episode, and kudos to bottled water companies and sport drink companies for getting all of that nonsense about eight glasses of water into our heads. If only other drinks had that kind of foresight. I can see it now. 
eight glasses of Sunny D per day. If your pee isn't orange, you're doing something wrong. But back to this clip. 24 to 32 ounces is 3 to 4 glasses of water. And he said per hour, not per day, per hour. For an 8-hour workday, that's 1.5 to 2 gallons. Think about that. You've seen a milk jug. Imagine drinking two of them in a day. And this guy is citing the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health here, so I don't believe this number came from GME Supply. But really? We're telling construction workers to drink a glass of water every 15 to 20 minutes? When are they going to do their job at that rate? Nobody follows the eight glasses of water a day rule, and that's fine because it's a myth. But if no one drinks eight glasses, who's actually taking this advice and drinking two gallons? The fact that this video would call this absolutely absurd hydration practice as the most important way to avoid heat stress is really scary. I'm sorry, but I can't see a solution to climate change being turning construction workers into human water balloons. And unfortunately, heat stress isn't the only way that climate change affects worker productivity. Take wildfires, California's third favorite export behind way too wide beds and unforgettable Katy Perry songs. Firefighters have to put themselves at extreme risk to respond to wildfires, and with wildfires worsening due to climate change, that's posing problems. A study in Global Public Health found the number of fatal and non-fatal injuries among firefighters as a result of falling trees and heat exhaustion are increasing, and that firefighters are also experiencing burns, smoke inhalation, transportation-related injuries, and cardiac arrest. When you hear about the impacts of wildfires, the productivity of firefighters is probably the last thing on our minds. But that's certainly an issue if worsening wildfires are injuring firefighters and decreasing their ability to respond to them. There's the horrifying individual impact of these injuries and this collective impact too. And it doesn't stop there. Climate change increases the risk of disease for many outdoor workers and can make some cooler areas more disease-prone. Climate change worsens and lengthens pollen seasons since increased CO2 and warmer temperatures allow plants to produce more pollen. And of course, seasonal allergies make it really hard for all of us to get work done. I mean, we're too busy scrounging for tissues and making small talk with everyone about how bad the pollen is. And climate change worsens extreme weather. Obviously, major heat waves, cold waves, floods, and hurricanes are going to put a damper on every company. You'd think the companies that all work from home could avoid this, but when storms cause power outages, even they are going to get hit. I'd say we at the Sweaty Penguin have been fortunate, but hell, we've sometimes had to scramble to get podcast episodes published during heat waves and hurricanes. Our editor Frank uploaded an episode with his mobile hotspot during Hurricane Isaias. And that's just thinking macro level. But if we look at the individual level, if you think about the people whose homes, cars, and possessions are destroyed in a hurricane, they're probably in need of their paycheck more than anyone. And I can't even begin to get into every single way it could play out where a hurricane would affect people's work life. We don't even talk about that during hurricanes because there are so many more pressing catastrophes. One piece of this hurricane issue that stood out, though, is the impact they have 
on the productivity of the first responders and cleanup workers. That's right! The people responding to the hurricane see their productivity affected by the hurricane. How does that happen? First off, first responders can very easily be injured, get inadequate sleep or food, and face physical and mental exhaustion in the heat of the hurricane as they work to rescue people. Cleanup workers can also encounter toxic substances, asbestos, mold, and other hazardous dusts, which can lead to a myriad of health effects. In fact, during Katrina, so many workers were exposed to airborne particles as a result of the hurricane that they used the term Katrina cough to describe it. That sounds awful then, but imagine widespread coughing in this day and age? You clear your throat under your mask in a grocery store and everyone goes running for the exit. And more recently... As climate change has worsened, we're seeing cases where hurricane cleanup workers are impacted by second hurricanes. Remember Hurricane Laura in August 2020 that hit Louisiana? There was obviously a large cleanup effort to try to recover from that disaster, but then a little over a month later, with that cleanup still underway, Hurricane Delta hit. Honestly, cleaning up hurricanes is starting to become like making your bed. You have to start to wonder, if it's going to be messed up tomorrow anyway, what's the point? Listen to Steve and Erica, two cleanup workers who helped in the Hurricane Laura recovery, describe how Hurricane Delta affected them. One of the texts that came through were saying to take the debris out of the ditches because they were afraid it was going to flood because everyone has to gut their houses or they're putting everything at the roads so when the debris truck finally gets to them, they can pick it up and take it away. So that's in their ditches and they just have some like small ditches in the area and they wanted everything removed for the flooding and we're just thinking of these huge debris piles that if this hurricane comes it's going to like throw this debris all over and all the work the people did to clean it up is going to be ruined you might think based on that these people were making a video to vent or something but this was in a video geared toward people interested in applying for disaster relief jobs there are links to job openings in the description so I don't think this anecdote was intended to scare us straight or anything. It certainly wasn't intended to make us freak out about climate change. And the fact that this was just two people casually telling their story, I think, makes it all the more compelling. Now, they did say the debris ended up being okay after Hurricane Delta, thank goodness. But they did have to take some time off and shelter from Delta, which put a damper in their ability to help clean up Hurricane Laura. And then, of course, they stuck around to help clean up Delta. And while they lucked out with the debris that time, imagine if they didn't and had to start over all that work. You can imagine that's a lot of wasted time, money, and resources. And if you can believe it, the environment affects our productivity in ways beyond climate change. Studies on both outdoor and indoor workers have found that air pollution has a measurable effect on productivity. A National Bureau of Economic Research study at a call center in China, for example, found workers are 5-6% to 6 more productive when air pollution levels are rated as good by the Environmental Protection Agency versus when they are rated as unhealthy. Keep in mind, these people are inside, working in an office. They're likely not noticing these changes in air quality, but are actually being affected day to day because of it. 
I never thought I'd side with Toby Flunderson from The Office, but maybe we should be checking the radon in the walls and asbestos in the ceiling. They are silent killers, just like Toby, who is without question the Scranton Strangler. A couple other studies I found really interesting. One from the Institute of Labor Economics studied chess tournaments. They measured the air pollution each day, watched players' moves, and compared their moves to what a supercomputer deemed the perfect move. Sure enough, a 10 millionth of a gram per cubic meter increase in the indoor concentration of fine particulate matter, which for context is a significant but not ridiculously huge change in air quality. That change increased a player's probability of making an error by 26.3%. I have to say though, with this powerful of a supercomputer at our disposal, why are we using it for chess? Why can't we use it for life, you know? You pick your college dorm and it tells you good move. You order lettuce on your Chipotle burrito and it tells you bad move. Wouldn't that be so much more useful? A similar study in the Journal of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economics on baseball umpires found that 10 millionth of a gram per cubic meter increase in particulate matter led to a 2.6% increase in the probability that they'd make an incorrect call. And for a one part per million increase in carbon monoxide, it was an 11.5% increase in the propensity to make a bad call. And no, the authors of the study aren't just salty Dodgers fans. To me, this was shocking. We've talked about many forms of air pollution on the podcast before, particulate matter especially when we looked at some sources like airplanes and corn. But to say that these pollutants can affect our day-to-day -day brain functioning without us even realizing it? And it doesn't matter if we're working indoors or outdoors? That's really something. And according to George Mason University's Alex Tabarek, it's not just affecting individuals, but is actually a really important economic concern for countries. So I think one of the ironies is that countries like India spend a lot of money and time and effort improving the education of their students, improving a human capital. And yet at the same time, pollution is an attack on human capital. Pollution makes it more difficult to work. It reduces people's IQ. People have health problems. So all of, for all of these reasons, when we are spending more on education, we're then pounding back on uh, with pollution. We are reversing what we have done with education. That's a really interesting point. Alex argues that spending on education without investing in pollution turns out to be inefficient in improving human capital, which ultimately improves the economy. You can look at that as a better educated workforce being more valuable in dollars and cents, or just on the surface as people getting better educations. Both are accurate, both, I think we'd agree, are good things. But I guess the flip side of what Alex is saying, then, is that working on air pollution has sort of a multi-pronged effect. It cleans up the environment and helps people's health, but it also helps the economy. That's not to say investing in education and trying to boost the economy and doing so is bad. I don't think he's saying that at all. But his take, that pollution sort of pounds back at that investment, is absolutely valid. Of course, these worker productivity hits stand to deal a major blow to the global economy in the next decade. 
Higher temperatures alone threaten a global economic loss of $2.4 trillion in 2030, which for context is nearly the entire economic output of France. Imagine France just vanishing? Actually, we know how to make baguettes here, we'd probably be okay. But while every country will, and already is, feeling these effects, the regions losing the most here are in Asia and Western Africa, and disproportionately lower-income countries. And if you look to the individual level, any worker would be affected if they're not able to do their job as well, that might affect their careers down the line, but the workers most affected day-to-day would be peace workers, workers who don't get paid by the hour, but paid by the amount of work they get done. Think of a writer who gets paid per article, or a call center worker who gets paid per call. When you think about it from an employer's perspective, piecework makes a lot of sense. Listen to Dave Tucker, owner and CEO of Clip Software, share the reasoning to not pay by the hour, as is often done. If you pay your guys by the hour, think about what you're actually doing. When you hand them the paycheck, you're actually telling them, hey, the longer you take, the more money I'll pay you. And guess what? If you can stretch the work that I've given you for this week into more than 40 hours, I'm gonna pay you time and a half. That's right, I'm gonna bonus you for taking longer. Isn't that nice? From an employer's perspective, it's hard to argue with that. You're paying people to perform certain tasks, not be present for a certain number of hours. But from the employee's perspective, it's easy to see some problems arise. On the one hand, it can be a good thing. You work harder, you make more money. But what if the truck the company gave you breaks down and you can't get your work done? What if the amount of work you're expected to get done is way too much? That's been a very common issue around the world, and a reason many workers have critiqued the piecework model. And very clearly, if your productivity is affected by heat and pollution out of your control, and your paycheck takes a hit week to week as a result, that's maybe a little unfair. I'm not going to get into an argument of piecework versus hourly wages versus salaries. Obviously, the more important question is whether we should all get paid in cash or just Xbox gift cards. But as you can see, these environmental impacts on productivity would hit pieceworkers harder than anyone else. And piecework is a way for employers to just shift that burden onto the employees. Since agriculture is one of the most common industries where we see peace workers, you can imagine how all these issues start to stack up. So where do we go from here? Obviously, the larger issues of climate change and air pollution would have to be fixed, and I can't solve those for you in 30 seconds, but I can point out some ways to adapt, potentially, while we work at those larger solutions. For heat, air conditioning has been shown to increase productivity, that's right, listening to... For eight hours per day, works. It doesn't fix the absence issue, but it's a start. You can also adapt working hours, dress codes, and equipment, provide shade, rest breaks, and water, assuming you're not demanding employees guzzle it by the gallon. And you can even consider relocating to cooler areas if you feel it would help. As for pollution... Indoor facilities can look to things like HEPA air filters, which can filter out particulate matter in the building itself, but keep in mind, outdoor pollution does still have an effect. 
Employers can also find ways to provide protections for workers with underlying health conditions and or measure pollution in a given location, and with that information, see if there's a need to reduce time outdoors, rotate workers, or restrict workers if the pollution is severe. Policy can also play a role here to improve workers' safety and make sure peace workers are actually getting paid fairly. Ultimately, there's no perfect solution here, but being aware that worker productivity is a part of all these different climate and pollution issues and finding ways to take control where you can is really all we can expect from ourselves. And if we do fix the environment and improve our economy, our health, and our career prospects in doing so, we can be sure the only thing standing in the way of getting our work done is that amazing swivel chair. I don't know what to do with you, swivel chair. You're distracting, but you're just too much fun. Do you think Shy Guy Beach is utter crap? If so, DK Summit is for you. With DK Summit, you can do away with those pesky snowboards and just ride your motorcycle down the mountain as fast as you can. Hate sitting on boring ski lifts? DK Summit will get you back to the top by shooting you out of a literal cannon. But climate change is already reducing the amount of snow cover on ski slopes, so time is running out to enjoy Donkey Kong's third favorite place, DK Summit. The best way to teach children that driving off the side of a mountain gives you a speed boost. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Matthew Nidell, Professor of Health Policy and Management at Columbia University. Dr. Nidell, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to ask you specifically about two of the studies you co-authored. First, I want to ask about the study on pear packers and particulate pollution. Uh, what was the study about and what were some of your findings? That study was looking at the relationship between uh, fine particulate matter which is a, a pollutant regulated by the EPA, and looking at how it related to the productivity of workers at a pear factory. What these workers were doing was they were, you know, as pears were coming along the conveyor belt, they would take the pears and wrap them carefully and place them in boxes. What was interesting about this setting is that the workers got paid for each box they packed. So at the end of the day, their wage for the day was based on how many boxes they had packed. So what that meant for us was that we had really clean measures of, of their output, right? How much they produce each day, which is usually a pretty hard thing to get. The other interesting thing about this setting was that this was a, a factory in the Central Valley of California, and the, the weather was quite nice there for the most part, and the, the factory for the most part had, had the doors open. So because the doors were open, uh, whatever pollution was outside was essentially the same amount of pollution that was inside the factory. Uh, so what we did in that study was we had measures of, of pollution on a daily basis, and then we had measures of, of each worker's productivity on a daily basis. And through various statistical adjustments, we, we estimated the relationship between, between particulate matter and the, the productivity of the pair packers. And we found that when pollution got higher, 
uh, we saw decreases in worker output. And then you co-authored another study looking at pollution on call center workers in China. So tell us a bit about that study and what you found. Yes, that was a study in, in, in a very different setting. And we wanted to ask, do these effects extend beyond just people who are doing physical tasks, but might they affect people at their desks, people who have desk jobs? So again, we were driven to a setting where we'd have really good data availability on on worker productivity. That's sort of the important ingredient for for making any of this happen. And for that, we use data from a a call center in China. And at this call center in China, it's a really high-tech work organization where the workers are are logging in every time they need to um, do their work. And from that, we have kind of detailed measures of how often they're, they're logging in and logging out and how many calls they're completing throughout the course of the day. And this call center was a call center where, where people would call in to make, to make travel reservations, right? So think it's kind of like a, a travelocity, except instead of using the internet, you're, you're calling into a center to have it done. So we had really detailed measures on how many calls each worker is, is completing during the course of a day. So this is kind of thinking a more, more classical desk job. And there we also had measures of, of pollution sort of in, in, in surrounding areas, not necessarily measures of pollution in, inside the building. And, and there we think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, that certain pollutants do penetrate inside, especially really fine particulate matter, that these pollutants work their way into the tiny cracks of buildings and, and work their way inside. Certainly much less at a much lower scale than if you have kind of the factory doors wide open. Um, but still, we think there's, there's strong evidence suggests that there is going to be a relationship between outdoor pollution and indoor pollution, even in a, you know, a, a fairly modern building. And what we found in that setting was something similar to what we found in the, in the previous study, that when uh, pollution levels uh, increased, we found decreases in the number of calls that workers were completing. So again, again, a similar pattern that it was when pollution went up, we found worker productivity decreasing. We've talked about particulate matter and other uh, toxins and pollutants on the podcast before, and we've talked about how it might be linked to, say, a particular disease or a particular illness, but that's really amazing that you're finding these swings in productivity just on a day-to-day basis based on the prevalence of the pollutant. So why is it that these pollutants would affect people on these much shorter timescales as opposed to longer exposure? When it comes to particulate matter, mostly evidence suggests there could be effects from both long-term exposure, but also short-term exposure. Um, Some of the original studies that really uncovered pollution more generally as having an effect on human health were really short-term exposures where they found elevated pollution levels and, and, and increased levels of, of mortality on the same day. But those, those effects, when we think about outcomes like mortality, they tend to be more concentrated on people who are already more vulnerable to begin with, people with compromised immune systems to begin with. So now we're thinking about kind of a, a, a younger, healthier population. And here we think that, you know, for the most part, it, there's not going to be kind of extreme effects for people where we think people are going to get sick to the point where, where, where they die or where they necessarily, you know, seek out formal health care. 
but we might see more, more subtle effects for this population where somebody's not sick enough that they don't, they don't call in sick for the day and say, I'm not going to work, but they show up at work and they feel some kind of symptoms, you know, kind of like a common cold. Maybe they, their eyes are a little watery, their throat is a little scratch, scratchy, their nose is running. And these are enough that they're, they're bothering these workers enough to the point where it affects their ability to, to complete their job. So on the podcast, we're always very careful to remember that correlation doesn't imply causation. So I love asking experts about it as it relates to their work. So in these studies you did, are you able to go beyond saying pollution and worker productivity are correlated and confidently say that pollution causes this decline in productivity? That's a great question. And, and, and I, I, you're right. It's an important point that we should always take into account in these studies. In our case, we can't definitively say it's causation because we're not running an experiment and we, we're not manipulating pollution you know, as, as researchers and, and looking at the effect that we see. Instead, we're doing what we consider an observational study where it's just the data that we observe in the real world. That said, there are a bunch of steps that we take to try to push our correlational estimate more in the causal direction or the causal interpretation. But I'll give you one sort of example of what's interesting in, in both of these studies is that we follow the workers over time, right? So we don't just have a cross-section of workers um, and just say, oh, pollution is higher in this city and worker productivity is lower in this city, but we actually follow these workers over time. So we observe someone on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and again, the following week, we observe them for five days again. And then we also observe pollution levels on those five days too. And we can ask when pollution goes up compared on today, compared to yesterday, what happens to that worker's productivity on today compared to yesterday, right? So we can look at the changes in pollution and how the changes in pollution correlate with the changes in worker productivity. And then we can also adjust for other things that may be going on at the same time, like we can control for weather factors like temperature, um, humidity, rain, and other things like that, that we think might also be related to worker productivity. So even with all these steps, we can't definitively uh, you know, conclude that it's, that it's causal, but we've ruled out a lot of confounding threats in our analysis that we feel like we have a a very strong correlation that we think, um, you know, bodes well for there being a causal relationship. There's a growing body of literature finding links between climate change and worker health, climate change and worker productivity. Obviously, pollution plays a part of that. How do you feel your research in these case studies fit into this larger conversation? If we think pollution is affecting worker productivity, and we think it affects worker productivity through health, through some kind of subtle change in health, again, not a significant enough change in health that you say, I'm going to go to the doctor, but, you know, a subtle change in health that, you know, just leads you to be a little, little less productive on the job. We think there's reason to think there might be a similar channel through, through weather that, you know, if it's, if it's hotter out today, you might not be sick enough that you decide to stay home, but there might be subtle effects on your well-being that affect your ability to to produce on the job. The other way that it might indirectly be related is if we think about policies related to climate change. So if we think about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that's certainly going to help 
reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that we see and eventually reduce the amount of, of climate change that we see. But that also has a co-benefit of, of reducing the amount of pollution that we see. Something that people talk about, the, the co-benefits from uh, climate change policies. So if these policies are implemented that lower greenhouse gas emissions, we would see decreases in, in, in local pollutants as well. And we might see improvements in, in worker productivity as, as, as a result. And one thing that's important about that is it, it stands in contrast to policies that might rely on something like carbon capture and storage, where carbon capture and storage will say, you can continue to emit the greenhouse gases, we're just going to capture the greenhouse gases as opposed to a policy that actually reduces the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted. So with carbon capture and storage, we're still going to see the same amount of particulate matter that we see without carbon capture and storage. I don't know if this is a little overly hopeful, but is it possible that this research and these effects on worker productivity could push a company to install HEPA filters or insulate people from changes in temperature or any of these sorts of solutions you're talking about? First step is that they need to be aware of this link, right? Aware that that link exists. And then it would make sense for a business to say, what's the best way I can improve the output of the workers that I have? And there's all kinds of strategies that they undertake, right? Is it the, is it the contract that you set? Is it the kind of ergonomic setup that you have for your workers? And this is another domain for them to think about and say, you know, is air filtration something that's important? So I think that would be certainly be a situation where a business would, would get a lot more bang for their buck and, and they might be interested in making that kind of investment. We've talked about a lot of the technical solutions, but to finish off, I wanted to ask if this research has led you to any sort of policy questions. Do you feel like there's anything policymakers should know or consider? Do you have any sort of message to them? You always hear policymakers say, you know, we don't, we don't want to regulate the environment because it's going to put the economy at risk. And what this research says is it's kind of turning that upside down and it's saying, but actually by improving air quality, you might actually be helping the economy. Workers are more productive, right? A healthy population is a healthy workforce and that improves worker output. Now, it could be, just to be clear, it could be that the harms to the economy from the regulation are larger than the gains in terms of worker productivity. We're not making sort of a statement about which one is bigger, but just to make that statement that says it's going to slow down the economy is missing the entire picture. There's more to it than that. And I think that's another important direction for, for research to go is to really say, well, really, you know, we talked about this, you know, a few minutes ago, do these results generalize into, into other sectors of the economy? How big is this on an economy-wide perspective? And then we should compare that to, you know, much more clearly, how much might it slow down the economy if we put more uh, air quality restrictions in place? So I think this might change the way we might think about that argument. Dr. Nidell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. This wraps up episode 63 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. 
that helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout-out by joining our Patreon. And you'll get not just a shout-out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Megan Crimmins and Ethan Brown, fact-checked by Olivia Amate, and edited by Frank Hernandez. Our producers are Olivia Amate, Ethan Brown, Megan Crimmins, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, Dane Kim, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Lindsay Cronin, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Clips today came from CNA, GME Supply, Radar Road Warriors, Center for Social and Economic Progress, and Clip Software.